From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, this is ReSound. One sixtieth second for shadow photography on the sequence camera. It's not often that you can foretell history, but I think we can in this case. Hello? Hello? Okay, if you want, you can call back. I'm going to step off the land now. I'm Gwen Maxi. Each week we bring you the most interesting, engaging, and provocative audio we can find, whether it be produced by a seasoned veteran or a radio rookie. Today, two stories. Here There Is No Moon poses the question, why does one commit suicide while another does not? Producer Susan Stone crafts a portrait of the suicidal mind from the perspective of those who survived the bullet, the bottle, or the jump, and those who try to intervene. Also today, we have a composition from Cohabitation, a collection of five stories about the people who inhabit a fictional graystone in Chicago. Coming your way, the story of Apricot Wensleydale, a grandma whose name alone warrants further listening. Stay with us. Leaving the planet Earth and going forward into the universe. On a brisk day in October, the busty Apricot Wensleydale hides from her three grown children. Olive Orange sneaks beef broth into her husband's vegan couscous. Jacob Witherby reads aloud to a family of lost ghosts. And two Argentinian ants fall in love. These are the radio play-inspired vignettes that make up the collection called Cohabitation. Let's listen to the story of Apricot Wensleydale, written, read, and composed by Jill Summers. Apricot Wensleydale had breasts like two bowling balls. They were stuffed in a mammoth brassiere and covered by a billowy floral blouse with a drawstring neck, and they bobbed up and down as she scrubbed the pots and pans stacked high in her vintage porcelain sink. She did dishes, folded laundry, and arranged and rearranged the menagerie of knickknacks that covered every surface in her apartment. She watched television, ran hot baths, and hoarded Fannie Mae. She scowled at the mailman who invariably folded her magazines with a hard crease down the center that made flipping through the pages gracefully virtually impossible. She was a mother, a grandmother, and a widow, and in this late autumn of her 72nd year, she was unequivocally sure of two things. First Floor hadn't cleaned their dog's poop out of the backyard in at least two weeks, and the only way to get her three grown children off her back was to fake her own death. She had loved them in all of the usual ways, had watched them grow increasingly unlike her, and had wondered how it was that she now found herself a woman unconditionally referred to as Mima. It had been enduring the first time her youngest grandchild had said it, out of necessity and genuine desire, it seemed, to see her. Coming from her adult children and their collection of overexcited spouses, however, this she could do without. As her days grew shorter, and particularly after the death of her ornery but beloved husband, she saw less and less the point of humoring them. At least when Walter was alive, there had been someone to complain to. After a Sunday dinner like the one she had just hosted, there would have been a limitless supply of comments, moments, and outfits over which to remark. 
Walter Jr.'s third helping of ham or his wife Trina's halter top, Joseph's new perm, Abigail's refusal to say grace. Now she was left alone to clean up and wonder silently how her daughter could have converted to Judaism for someone named Noah, how a man that had come from her womb could be voting libertarian this year. Apricot flicked an ant off the counter, dried her hands on her apron, and rifled through a junk drawer for a pack of hidden cigarettes. She was certainly old enough and had been purposely verbal about her angina this year, so it would come as no surprise if she were to, for instance, pass peacefully in her sleep, whisked away by paramedics before her family had a chance to see her lifeless body. She was fairly sure that Frank Strasshausen from her late husband's hospital nursing home would help her on the administrative end, perhaps in return for a 30-day train pass or a peek at one of her still-robust bosoms, the old pervert. The issue of inheritance, however, remained a problem. She knew at least one of her children, probably Walter Jr., that bastard, would make a stink. After some contemplation and brief consultation of her horoscope, she considered that perhaps it made sense to simply be honest with them. Walter Wensleydale's ancestor had purportedly come to Chicago with the Joliet and Marquette expedition. Sometime after that, his great-grandson's great-grandson's great-grandson rented a tenement to Joseph Bobo, and the son and daughter of these two men, respectively, were aligned in the midst of one of their parents' card games sometime in the late 1940s. Luckily, Walter had been handsome and apricot-toothsome. Their parents had hardly anticipated that they would sleep together on their very first date— in the back of Mr. Wensleydale's Chevy Bel Air on top of brand-new two-tone leather seats. Lucille Bobo, Apricot's mother, had not warned her about the consequences of such a careless, though gratifying, course of action, and five weeks later, she and Walter were engaged to be married. Happily, Walter Jr. was a small baby and had been barely noticeable under a crinoline. Despite the fortuitous nature of it all, Walter had been a good husband, and Apricot simply wanted to wait to join him in peace. She settled down for a repeat of Sanford and Son with a lucky strike in one hand and a big ballpoint and a pack of stationery in the other. Dear children, she began, though I love you all, and believe me, I really, truly do, even though I went from a carefree teenager to a pregnant newlywed and less time than it would have previously taken me to pick out a container of rouge at Foley's, I never felt sorry about it for a moment. The years I spent raising you, and don't let those horrid stories your father told you make you doubt this, were the best of my life. Nothing makes me prouder than seeing you and the grandchildren gathered around my dining room table, sharing the joy of family and shoving huge, indigestible bites of meat that you cannot possibly even be tasting, for Christ's sake, food that I lovingly prepared, mind you, into your ungrateful, thankless potty mouths. Apricot crumbled the paper and began again. Dear children. Her apartment ran the length and width of the structure and was the largest one in the building. It was meticulously organized, though it had the outward appearance of being colossally cluttered. It was decorated in classic old lady style. Tin TV trays with lace doilies on them, an odd anthology of collector's plates without discernible theme or even consistent taste, mismatched porcelain figurines living in harmony with a herd of miniature crystal elephants, forever en route to the Serengeti. There were a few curiously fantastic items, like her mother's Art Nouveau dressing table with its flawless beveled mirror, and the antique bird of paradise rug seemingly stolen off her back porch while airing out, which she had noticed Joseph's wife Maria eyeing with lust over hefty bites of turkey and gravy. She was the only lot of them with any taste, which is why Apricot had willed the items to Trina, who had most likely used them as a TV stand and bath mat, respectively. 
Apricot paused to consider a briefly bare-chested Lamont on her 27-inch RCA and continued. Though I love you very much, your mother is a very, very old woman. I do not have the energy that I once had. Sometimes when you bring my countless beloved grandchildren over, what is it now, seven, eight of them, and leave them screeching and running around like a sick pack of wild, hateful bastard monkeys, no, that certainly would not do. She took the last puff of her cigarette and extinguished the butt and a bit of spit in her palm. She thought about her own parents, who had died in their fifties. That had worked out pretty well, she figured. Her father had gone first from a heart attack, her mother a year later from what they then called a broken heart but what is now more commonly known as cancer. Apricot had been sad, of course, but remembered also the feeling of great freedom, that a cycle had been completed, that it was now somehow officially her turn. If her own offspring noticed that she had now lived a full 22 years past the ideal age for a parent of grown children, they did not let on. They seemed to delight in utilizing her babysitting services, her Sunday dinner preparation skills, her inability to initiate the end of a phone call conversation. She wondered if, had her parents lived into their 70s, they would have felt equally drained by her company. Apricot had once watched a program on public television about tribesmen who abandoned their elderly, starving or beating them to death like ancient, unwanted babies when their bodies began to fail. The leathered face of an Eskimo woman set out alone to sea, and the waiting arms of the elements had seemed strangely at peace. Perhaps Apricot could get special dispensation and be set adrift in the Keys. Did the Eskimo elders ever tie their grown children in bundles and send them floating off to have their eyes pecked out by gulls and their skin dried into prunes by the sun for dropping by unannounced with a basket of dirty laundry and three filthy children in tow? Dear children, it certainly pains me to say so, but I would very much appreciate fewer unannounced drop-in visits, particularly before the noon hour on the weekends. It's true, an old woman like myself has not much more than her family to live for or look forward to, but God forbid you consider even for a second that I may have plans of my own. God damn it, you selfish little shits. And after a thoughtful moment, she added, Love me, Ma. Apricot crumbled the sheet and set it down with the others that littered the couch. On television, Lamont had consulted an astrologist and determined that his goal in life was to get along with his father at all costs. Fred, however, having accidentally eaten a helping of eight-day-old greens, was testing their relationship with vocalized fears of his impending death. Apricot chuckled and choked on a bit of smoke that she had not yet exhaled. The choke turned into hacking, and she clutched her heart, which was suddenly full and uncomfortable. She was quite sure she felt a sharp pain spread through her shoulders and up her neck. There was a heavy weight on her chest, and then she felt her head go light as a feather as she fell from the couch with a flat thud. Apricot lay on the hard floor without even having had the good fortune of landing on a rug. From this vantage, she had a clear view between the curved wooden legs of her couch, two G.I. Joes, four bobby pins, several dust bunnies, and one improperly discarded tea bag. She heard Fred and Lamont bickering and wished MacGyver was on instead. She looked up and saw the three crumpled letters perched upon the couch cushions peering down at her, Jesus Christ. She could only hope that Joseph's family would find her first, at least they were half illiterate. With her luck, though, she would be discovered by Walter Jr.'s, and her blabbermouth daughter-in-law would make sure everyone in the family heard about this. That would cinch it. She'd be stranded in purgatory indefinitely for lack of prayers to boost her out. Apricot considered praying, but doubted seriously if God would recognize her voice at this point. Maybe she would do better to call on Mary, as the meticulously dusted statuettes and her belief that any woman could talk any man, divine or not, into anything could attest— 
but she figured the Virgin probably had better things to do than help an old woman who had, moments before, sat brazenly smoking and composing letters to discourage her own children and grandchildren from visiting. She wished she had let Walter Jr. buy her that first alert necklace. She felt suddenly sorry that she had laughed so heartily at the old woman on television, who had fallen from her wheelchair and, having had the presence of mind to have ordered the clunky chain-link accessory, praise God, merely pushed a button and was immediately attended to by three broad-chested paramedics, who called her miss and smiled at the camera while lifting her onto a stretcher. Slowly, after several minutes spent pondering her woeful situation, Apricot hoisted herself up onto the couch and felt the tightness in her chest pass. She fluffed the floral pillows on either side of her and sank back into the cushions. Her arms felt heavy, and when she first felt the vibration under her palm, she braced herself for another fall. But when she looked down and turned her hand over to examine it, she revealed a forgotten cell phone that was apparently announcing a call by quivering and trembling and scooting around the cushion. Figuring it must have been left by one of her older, overindulged grandchildren, Apricot picked it up and examined the tiny touchpad. She pressed a button with a tiny green phone on it and hoped for the best. Hello, she questioned the tiny phone, which she now held directly in front of her face. She heard a small voice call back, Mom? She put the phone up to her ear and answered, Yes, Abigail, is that you? There was a second or so of silence on the other end, during which Apricot swore she could actually hear the creaky wheels in her daughter's thick skull churning. Oh, Mom, I see. Randy must have forgotten her phone. Oh, man, Mom, I'm surprised you could even figure out how to answer it. Typical. Apricot was about to answer when she decided, f*** it. She was going to go for it. Abigail? Abigail, I fell, Abigail, she moaned into the ridiculous little phone. Mom, are you okay? Abigail answered, suddenly concerned and sounding increasingly fearful. Apricot, feeling a sudden surge of vitality, got up from the couch and began to gather her favorite belongings as she talked to her stunned daughter. Yes, dear, I I feel faint. I think this might be, well, it, sweetie, she continued, stuffing a house dress and some maroon slacks into an overnight bag and tucking the crumpled letters in between her girdle and her favorite floral blouse. Mom, I'm going to call an ambulance. Hold on, Abigail screamed hysterically into the phone. No, no, sweetie, I mean, I've already called 911 and the paramedics are on their way. Tell the boys to meet me at Daddy's old hospital nursing home. Can you do that, honey? Apricot said, gingerly opening her front door with her foot. She turned at the last minute to straighten the orientation of an ottoman and switched the television to PBS. Then she made her way down the stairs with her bag. Okay, honey, she continued. I need to rest now. The paramedics will be here any minute. In fact, I think I hear them now. Be a good girl and call Joseph and Walter Jr. And with that, Apricot confidently pushed the button with a picture of the red phone on it without even looking. Outside, the dry, cool air shocked her after the humidified heat of her apartment. She looked up into the dark gray sky and did not miss the stars drowned out by the illuminated city to the east. Apricot planted her bag on the sidewalk next to her and let her head rock back and her arms hang heavy. She felt as heady as the fine French cheese that was her namesake. All of her life she'd felt herself pulled this way and that, but now her entire body pointed in the same direction. Hailing a cab with one hand, she deftly used the other to dial Frank Strasshausen. She informed him that there'd be a grand in it for him if he told her children, who without a doubt would take at least an hour to gather themselves and find their way to the hospital, a mere two miles away from the farthest sibling, that she had passed moments before their arrival and minutes after expressing eloquently her final wishes that her children not be permitted to see her lifeless body. He was to inform them firmly, 
of her wish to be cremated and her ashes, any old vestiges would do, spread by Walter Jr. over the lake at Crown Point, the family vacation destination that he had hated since he was eight. Trina, the least eloquent and most long-winded of them, as well as the one who knew her least, was to give the eulogy. Frank muttered his agreement, and Apricot asked the driver to stop at an ATM, where she withdrew her balance. And then she ordered him to take her to O'Hare. Apricot Wensleydale, produced by Jill Summers and engineered by David Whitcomb. This piece is just a fraction of Jill's graduate thesis in book and paper arts from Columbia College. She's not only lovingly written the stories and the music, but she's also published a booklet and built a miniature replica of the Greystone that she imagines her protagonists inhabiting, each room a different style, matching the idiosyncrasies of each character. Now, Apricot Wensleydale may not be able to complete a letter for the life of her, but should you feel so moved, we encourage you to pick up a pen, a pencil, or a mouse, and send us your comments, questions, or graduate thesis. You can find us at Resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Since the Golden Gate Bridge opened in 1937, it's become the world's leading suicide location. On average, every two weeks, someone tries to end their life by jumping off the 20-story bridge over the San Francisco Bay. Nationally, in 2002, there were over 31,000 suicide deaths. There's no hard data for the number of suicide attempts, but the National Institute for Mental Health estimates that there are between 8 and 25 attempted suicides for every suicide death. In our next story, Here There Is No Moon, Bay Area producer Susan Stone tells the stories of those who've tried to commit suicide. Their voices speak of depression, illness, grief, and reveal what they were thinking before, during, and after their suicide attempt. What they have to tell us sheds a little light on this most desperate act. Here There Is No Moon by Susan Stone. This piece contains mature themes that may be inappropriate for younger or more sensitive listeners. He could have been anybody that you might know. You know, he wasn't uh, he wasn't homeless. He wasn't he wasn't addicted to to any substances. He had been working in a nonprofit and and struggling with a lot of issues in his life, which had ultimately brought him to that point. And uh, he was he was grateful that it that it hadn't uh, taken his life, but. Um, you could tell that the, the challenge of continuing remained for him. Sir, hey, open your eyes for me. Open your eyes for me. Fernanda, open your eyes. Open your eyes all, all the way. Well, yeah, you got the family. All the way, um, there we go. And, you know, you're there, you're wanting to do everything to bring them back. Um, Fernando, squeeze my hand. You know, it just didn't work out. Squeeze. And you're trying to explain, or someone's trying to explain squeeze to the family right here. what's going on, but you don't want to give them that false uh, sense of of hope, um, because a lot of times if, when you transport, when you drive away, they're thinking, oh, well, you know, there's that chance, everything's going to be great, um, everything's going to turn around, which reality, nine times out of ten, you know, it's, it's probably not going to work out. I took a pint of scotch, 
and I was going to go up into the woods and it was at night and I said I'm going to take my life it is just too painful my heart my soul my mind is just swirling I have memories of my father the abuse it was late night when I went to one of the the highest bridges in Cairo then I walked to the middle of the bridge and I decided to jump from the bridge to the river and in my life at that point she was half on the i-beam half off the i-beam i asked her if, uh, if she was okay and then i i wasn't too sure what to do so as she got closer i reached through the bars and i grabbed her hand and i pulled her against the bar put my feet up so that she couldn't let go so that way she couldn't get away from me and i and i told her that we could talk i didn't see that there was a way out that there was no more hope he was he was grateful that he hadn't that he hadn't died but at the same time i think he was also deeply ambivalent and torn about the challenge of of continuing living and uh, they come in unconscious they come in screaming about the voices in their head in the end you start to wonder about it all about suicide deciding whether to go or stay I think it's important that the point be made that it is a problem that spans all ages both genders and all kinds of people it's seen as something to be ashamed of it's seen as a sign of weakness it's seen as a as a characterological flaw and it's none of those it's part of the human condition it's a health problem and in situations like the golden gate bridge the failure of having uh, a barrier is is truly a public health failure if we had a if we had an intersection a traffic intersection where over 1200 people had been killed you can be certain that changes would be made to prevent future deaths but there's nothing really to stop the impulsive despondent person from jumping there are magnets in uh, in major uh, cities that are bridges or gorges uh, there's a gorge in Ithaca New York uh, near Cornell uh, that is known as a jump site uh, the Eiffel Tower in Paris has always been a, a magnet uh, there is uh, there are sites in Japan, there are sites really all over the world that are uh, sort of uh, sirens. They draw people to them either because of their beauty, because of their renown, uh, because of uh, some symbolic meaning they may have to the suicidal mind. Well, I went into the lake to drown myself a couple of times when I've tried to commit suicide. Um, when, when things just overwhelm you, and even though you have, even though you have five children that you love, you just can't quite make it. This is it. I'm gonna do it. I'll be dead. Everything will be okay. I'm just gonna do this and everyone will be okay. So you think you'll end it and then in the process of ending it you realize that you can't go through with it because there's too much out there that, that you want and that need you. And I wrote a suicide letter to my parents to my best friend and my girlfriend at the time I went out to the Golden Gate Bridge. I was on the bridge for a good 30, 40 minutes, just crying my eyes out. I walked into the water, and it was a, a warm southern lake. It was funny. This woman comes up to me and asks me to take her picture. 
and she couldn't even see that I was in so much pain. She just, and so I took a picture, and at that point I thought, okay, nobody cares. And I hurled over the rail. There is this sensation of sinking into pity, into paralysis, back into bed. Things known are swallowed by night. Here, there is no moon. It was an overcast day in San Francisco. It was a dark day for me. It was a real dark day for me. I'm ending my life on purpose. It's just, it, it was sad. Well, I was pregnant and I was about to have a baby, the fifth child, and uh, I became I husband. very sick mentally. I was paranoid, I was depressed. He didn't was act manic. like he loved me because he was running around and after I was on other women. 13 pills a day for the depression. Raising and they only seemed to worse. And, um, and um, life without a husband to help me. I had, a, I had a great life. Beautiful, wonderful parents. I had a brother and a sister who loved me dearly. I got a lot of roses from that man during my last few years with him. Um, sure. But they roses, they didn't help. Um, it was over. I'm just a guy on the bridge crying, you know? My life was picture perfect for, in everybody else's eyes. But it had happened so many times that uh, instead of getting immune to it, it was just building up to a point where I didn't think I could return anymore and be, be myself. I was falling head first, seven second fall, no time to think. It's like hitting a brick wall. Because what happens is you're going so fast that you stop. You just, for less than a second, you stop when you hit that water. I mean, dead stop. And the vacuum sucks you under the water. One cannot perceive the rise and fall of day. It's not surprising, really. Without light, the clock of day is lost. Movement through time becomes undisciplined. One cannot hurry, for one is unable to hurry. One could fall, you might say, from the steps. But living in darkness, movement need not be limited by shadows. Still, exploration feels treacherous. Roughly um, a quarter to one-third of all uh, very lethal uh, suicidal people uh, become so on impulse. The uh, length of time between the first thought of taking their lives and actually acting uh, maybe as little as five minutes. Uh, and so there is uh, data that if one can interrupt that impulsive action, uh, there is opportunity for change of mind, for intervention, for uh, a change of circumstance so that uh, the impulse passes, and obviously then it's time to work on any underlying issues that will prevent the impulse from coming back. Have you ever thought that maybe it, you don't want to go on with life or, or that this is too much to handle? 
It, it's actually asking about people's thoughts of suicide, and you don't have to ask that word. They just want to be held sometimes, so being vulnerable to them and just allowing them to express whatever emotions that they feel right at that time. Try to listen as much as possible to what they may say um, that they know that you really are there just to care and to listen. hearing voices I mean not like not not my conscious but actual voices in my head telling me you have to die you're not good enough falling off you. cliffs and, and I have dreams like when I'm on the bridge and I jumped off the bridge in a dream and the water was like right there <laughs> and the voices were really winning and um, and I just uh, went in way over my head and I was treading water and I just suddenly saw all the children that I'd had they were still alive and waiting for me at home and I there's, there's a very strange thing that gets into people's thinking, and it's so recurrent in humans that we are the only ones, you know. I must be a bad person because I don't know how to handle this. Finding someone else who is, in fact, experiencing it or has experienced it in the past, who can say, yeah, I felt like that too. It doesn't have to be the solution. It can just be sitting with a person, whether it's by phone or in person, who has been there. I've... I guess I've always had a heart for those that are going through trouble. And my heart is always hurt for when, when people are hurting. Um, I don't know if I come in as a chaplain. I don't know if I come in as an officer. I just come in as an individual that really cares. And I want to give them some hope. So you think you'll end it. And then in the process of ending it, you realize life without a husband to help me and the thought of Raising another child didn't matter that I had a new baby. It was just that I had been rejected. I think that's what got to me more than anything. It was just more than I could bear. There is life after, after disasters that the life can be put back together. The real thing and is the compassion uh, and being there with somebody and, and together trying to explore. The strength to, to go do. on and meet the next moment, oh, <laughs> the next hour. There are hour so many the needs day. out there. There are so many needs. And eventually someday it might get better. So I'm running out of air and I'm like, I'm, I'm gonna drown. I didn't die, but now I'm gonna drown. I don't wanna drown, that's, that's a horrible way to die. I didn't realize my injuries yet, but I was, I was in a lot of pain. Really cold from the water. I mean, that's some cold water. And then a fish went by my leg, and I just knew this isn't a dream. This is real. I just jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, and I, and I survived. With regard to the transcendent nature of, of jumping and the, the notion of that, that it's almost a, a free-floating, slow-motion experience going to the water, even though it's a matter of a, of a very a few number of seconds, obviously. Um, there are very few survivors who can report to us what the experience is like. You have to understand, it's, a, it's about a 240-foot drop. That's like 25 stories of a building. You hit about 120 miles per hour. You do the math. You hit about 120 miles per hour. It's insane. I, I just paddled so hard, I, I got to the surface. I just swam back to the shore, and uh, it was over. And about two minutes later, the, the Coast Guard came, picked me up, took me out of the water and they um, did surgery on my back and saved my life. And I weathered it. 
And I'm very happy now. It's just, and I have a whole it's just so amazing. If you say, if you look at me and, and lots of positive three years ago, and I don't, and you look at me now. I don't retrogress into those moments now. anymore. I, I've come I so a, a really long way, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. Years with him. So you, you climb out of the water, and you get on the sand, and you dry yourself off, and you put your clothes on, and you've passed that that point. The notion that thwarting a method now will only lead to a suicide by another method or another bridge or another whatever a day or two or a week from now uh, is just not supported by the data. I, I get scared sometimes. I get scared that, uh, you know, what if I try something like that again? I'm not, I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I promised myself and I promised my parents and I promised my loved ones I'd never do nothing like that again. But. You know, you never know what happens on any given day. Crisis Support Services. Hello? This is Crisis Support Services. <clears throat> okay, if you want, you can call back. There comes that time when the phone call ends because both the, the, the crisis has de-escalated and the person can safely go on with the rest of their day. And there's always that feeling of what's going to happen when this person hangs up the phone. And that uncertainty is one of the things that you sit with in this line of work. But it's interesting, the things that sometimes keep people going. I remember talking to a, a, a person who called me, and they, most calls are not this dramatic, but literally said, I, I have a gun in my hand and I don't know what I'm going to do. And... We talked for probably two hours, and at the end of the the call, the person put the gun down because she had two children, and she needed to go put her kids to bed. And it was something as kind of mundane and everyday as that which kept her going. really, really depressed, and um, I decided, you know, the kids are back at school, and I'm nothing but a burden. It's been too much on the family, and at this point, I had been dry for four years, and I decided to take an overdose. So I took a whole bunch of pills, a huge supply of them, and um, I also had a razor blade, and um, I cut my wrist, but not badly. I don't remember doing it, but apparently, you know, the next day I had bandages on my wrist. I don't remember anything. I don't remember anything. 
Lady Lazarus. I have done it again. One year in every ten I manage it, a sort of walking miracle, and I a smiling woman. I'm only 30, and like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. What a trash to annihilate each decade. What a million filaments. The peanut-crunching crowd shoves in to see them unwrap me hand and foot. The big strip tease. I used to think about suicide since I was a teenager. I suffered from major depression and the schizoaffective, the hallucinations and all of that, and the dissociative. And I started drinking heavily, and I was on some antipsychotics, and I had Haldol and Stelazine and, oh, God, just a whole bunch, a whole cocktail of drugs. The first time it happened, I was 10. It was an accident. The second time I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut as a seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art, like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call. I'd been on Seroquel, 800 milligrams a day, and it's an atypical antipsychotic, Haldone, Stelazine, and Prolexin, and those old ones. And, uh, you know, there's this thing called Geodon, Zeprazidone, that's what its name is. Oh, God, what? Uh, Zyprexa, and Seroquel is another one. Geodon, I think, is great. And then the old-fashioned ones, the gold standard is Haldol, Thorazine, Prolexin, and Stelazine, uh, and... Uh, Zyprexa. I was on. Um, but these new ones now are great. I have bad days. I have bad weeks. I do feel fulfilled by my work, and um, I'm really proud of the kids. I'm really proud that they've been able to get through this without being scarred. I think they must be scarred to a certain degree, but without being scarred to an extent that they are traumatized. They seem to be getting on in life. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there is a charge, a very large charge, for a word or a touch or a bit of blood or a piece of my hair or my clothes. The sharpest side solace, epiphanies, a lyrics romantic mythology of self-destruction. Suicide was not only the subject of Sylvia Plath's late poems, it was their condition. Her poems, plus her actions, her appalling suicide, made her not only a poet, but a performance artist. What she did was madness, but it was also an extraordinary literary strategy and gave her what she so deeply and clearly wanted, death and literary immortality. A closed world with its own irresistible logic, Alfred Alvarez once wrote of suicide. 
something shameful to be avoided and tidied away. Plath would say, rather, a world blood-hot and personal. Courageous act, a cowardly exit, cruel judgment of a lover's inadequacy or a parent's mistakes, crime, compulsion, or choice. 911, what's that? We do have somebody on the way over to you. It'll remain calm. 10-4. Many people come in and say, I just don't know if I can go on. And some may say it directly. I'm a psychiatrist. I ask directly, uh, are you suicidal? And people will say, I'm thinking about it. And you hear expressions of helplessness and hopelessness. And that certainly is, of course, depression. The depression is the number one indicator of uh, suicide. Teens have come in. Drugs, cuttings, pills. We can see it in their eyes. They talk about websites they go to, dark and bloody sites featuring postings that encourage hurting yourself. Teenagers who I, I do see, uh, they usually have expressed it somehow through action. The teenage uh, girl that has decided to slash her wrist, cut it. Superficial, but definitely. Uh, they express it that way. Women tend to internalize and they will, they will talk about how bad they feel, including somatically. This pain, that pain, that the doctors can't do anything about. They'll express it that way and women will try this medicine and that medicine and women tend to take overdoses. Older men tend to drink heavily try and get everything out of their mind and their suicides are more in action ways jumping shooting etc the task force will be reviewing other municipal transportation options in the weeks ahead. In other news, an Oregon man who walked away virtually unharmed from a plunge over Niagara Falls this past weekend said he had been suicidal, but the experience made him want to live. The comments of Brian Russell contradict statements from authorities suggesting Russell was simply a daredevil, the latest in a long line who sought to conquer Niagara Falls over the last century. Russell, 40, was released from the hospital into police custody and taken to the Niagara Falls Regional Police Station. In a telephone interview with Canadian Broadcast News, Russell said that initially he did not want to go on living when he climbed over a guardrail and dove into the churning Niagara River. But he concluded his interview with reporters by stating, quote, After surviving the falls, I feel life is worth living. Police investigators said the incident was not being treated as a suicide attempt, but that Russell would be undergoing a psychiatric evaluation. For Canadian Broadcast News, I'm Andrew West. My life is simple. There are moments of impossible beauty. 
I stand at the foot of the bed. My heart swells at the sight of the sleeping child. I live behind a thousand-yard stair and fall into the hole that's opened in the middle of my life. I awake to the cold slap of currents, light lapping my face. The needle, light and wire mesh on the wall. I am a dark, dangerous angel, earth dark, sucking soil, where flowers bloom their prim white hearts. I cling to those I love and lose my grip above a deep well of city streets. A creature under ice. A cry, an exhale thrown from a body. Whenever I passed on the street, she'd seem preoccupied, but as if she was searching for something or somebody. She, she always was a little distracted. Sometimes she'd even walk right by and look right through me. She, she seemed to be looking for somebody, and yet there was never anyone there. I awake to the cold slap of currents, light lapping my face. The disappearance, the withdrawing, the pulling back, the disappearing was so... that there was... you didn't have the opportunity to go to lock horns and insist that she tell you why you were being cut out, why you were being cut off, because she would just disappear and, and withdraw so completely that you couldn't... I miss her. Um, at least I miss her the way she used to be. story told in its fullness, a gun laid down. To whom it may concern. This is harder than I thought it would be. And it's that they time will for always me to go. My heart. I'm sorry. I hope I stay in theirs. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but this is the only thing I could do for myself. I know this is the easy way out, but... I have no one, and I am just too tired. One can try to cope alone, but there are places to go for help, people to go to for help. There are interventions. Questions can be asked. I heard the voice of my mother, and I could see her face at that moment. And I thought nobody can make sure I'd commit a suicide or somebody killed me. She would never know what happened. I think family members that are the most effective, they listen. They listen to the, the problems that their spouse, their son, their daughter, their mother, their father, they listen to what is being said and they take it seriously and listens with a uh, unbiased ear. They usually find the clues as best to advise the person. It's really a taboo subject. Should somebody have that thought that they're concerned that, that somebody they know might be suicidal. Most people are very afraid to bring that up and wouldn't know how to even begin out of fear of 
alienating their, their friend or their loved one. Has there been a recent loss through death, divorce, separation, loss of job, loss of money or status or self-esteem? Listen to what they tell you. Good doctors, good pastoral counselors, good social workers and therapists, and all of those are some kind of intervention. I would call it treatment. Some people find religion. Uh, I've seen suicidal people in prisons, counseled by peers in prison, and there are medicines that do work, and that can be helpful as well. Other worries about money or illness? Fear of losing control, going crazy, harming oneself? In the darkest moment in your life, give yourself a moment to think of uh, other people, like your mother and your father and your, your children, who are your life, you really feel at that moment, big relief. You are the only person who make it happen. Overwhelming guilt, loss shame, of interest in friends or hobbies or sex or favorite activities. Do they have hope? I always think there is hope. I always think that there is hope because there are so many ways to fix these problems and I always think there's hope. For people that sit on that edge between choosing to live and choosing to take their own lives, it is those little everyday things which sustain them, which keep them going. And it, it's not always something profound. Sometimes it's just something as simple as you have to put your kids to bed that keeps you going to the next day, and then you deal with the next day as it comes. And for those people who sit on that edge, each day is a challenge, and each day that question arises. And I think it takes a tremendous amount of uh, fortitude to, to continue on in that state of mind. We choose to live. Sometimes we choose our own death. In the tunnel of the suicidal mind, no other choice seems possible but for the doorway in a dark passage, the extended hand, the counselor's ear, a tonic, time, another chance. If you or someone you know is feeling suicidal, please call 1-800-SUICIDE. Here There Is No Moon, by producer Susan Stone. We wanted to know a little bit more about how this piece was put together, so we invited Susan to talk with us. Susan, how did you find the people that you interviewed? Were they hesitant to talk to you? Was it therapeutic in any way for them? Where did you go looking? I found that uh, one person often led me to another. The person who inspired the piece was the first person um, in fact, that I talked to. And it was my mother who, at the age of 83, revealed a 40-year-old secret about how she had attempted multiple times to take her own life. And as she began to talk, um, I realized how relieved she was, not only that she had not done that, but um, I realized that she introduced uh, many aspects of suicide attempt that I hadn't realized. One is how much of a secret it can be when people look like they have a very normal life. No one ever knew that she kept trying to um, take her own life um, because she just couldn't cope. 
she knew of other people, I would talk to them. Over a period of years, in fact, I was talking to these people because not everyone was ready to go to tape. And so I would revisit people on a number of occasions in talking to counselors, in talking to a few paramedics, um, a firefighter, a highway patrol chaplain. They led me to other people, some of whom refused to have their names used, which was fine. I changed names in some cases. And in most cases, because it's a non-narrative piece, there are no names at all. Simply the stories speak about the um, experience as opposed to having a more journalistic approach, which is identifying them and, and having a linear um, investigative approach to this piece. Wow, I am blown away that that's how, what sparked the interest in the piece. Do you mind if I ask you on what occasion she told you this this secret? One night she came to dinner, and we were talking about her good long life, and I, I said she had seemed to just cope with so many things so well, two marriages, ten children. Um, how did she do it? And she got very quiet and at the age of 83 revealed that, um, in fact, there had been about a ten-year span there where she um, had tried to um, leave that life and had covered it so well that although some of my siblings had suspected uh, that she um, had become ill or had strained wounds or had done some odd disappearing acts, they were in fact um, attempts at ending her life through using a shotgun at one point, taking pills, and drowning. She attempted to drown and um, was rescued by two boaters out on the lake who saw a pregnant woman walking into the lake and swimming out to the middle and then going under. And I was just stunned that 43 years later she was revealing this to me. And I don't know what overcame me at that moment, but I did happen to have just returned from the recording studio earlier that day, and I looked at the tape deck. And without going into that other place where a child might normally go, which is complete and utter shock and devastation, I said, can I record this? And I thought there was something very perverse that I did that. And it wasn't until probably two days later that I fell apart just listening to all of this. But since then, um, she's started telling me even more. And the story continued to build and build until I realized I had an incredible anchor for a larger piece, which is where do people go when they come back from a suicide attempt? How do they recover if they do? And what is it like in terms of impact on those around them? Um, What about those stories, those who are involved in the rescue or intervention, or families that are left behind when someone they love um, does, in fact, succeed at suicide? In the process of the production of the piece, was it difficult to maintain kind of enough of a distance to do the story and still be involved with, I mean, you can't really get more intimate than your mother. It was hard to keep my distance. I found myself um, taking a long time to do this piece because of the reactions I had to it. And also, I was very aware that I didn't want to be a voyeur either. I didn't want this piece to be so sensational or so um, exploitative that it was, if not a hit piece, as in get a load of this, folks, a piece that lacked a sensitivity because it simply exposed drama or trauma without showing the possibilities of what one can do to get help. So I kept coming back to questions that suicide raised for these people, for myself. Is it crime? Is it compulsion? Is it about choice? Is it a courageous act or a cowardly exit? And the most fundamental question of all, which I had to keep asking myself and many of these people, was why does one commit suicide while another does not? 
So the piece ended up being not so much an investigative piece into why people attempt suicide, but a portrait of what leads them to the act and how they regain, if they regain, their footing again on the other side of the attempt. The pieces that came together were stories that I think evoked a universality about suicide. It cuts across all ages, all nationalities, economic classes. There's a man who's sitting on a bridge in Cairo. There's a housewife from a wealthy suburb of San Francisco who drives up into the woods at midnight. Um, There's the teen who goes repeatedly to the Golden Gate Bridge and finally gives in to his long battle with depression and um, the challenges of high school. The young teen says something that haunts me. He said, well, you never know what's going to happen on any given day. And this is the young man who survived the leap from the Golden Gate Bridge, but he, to this day, has since tried um, again to take his life, um, but has, has not yet succeeded. And in the piece, I think he recognized, didn't he, that I can never say this will never happen again, but at this point, I'm happy. That's right. For so many, suicide is an impulsive act. It's about a car left running in the parking lot overlooking a bridge on a day that a marriage ends, or it's about a fatal disease that's been diagnosed. The impulsive act, um, if interrupted, as many of the people have said who are from the healing side of, um, or the counseling or the medical side of uh, the stories in this piece, um, really speak to a great extent about um, if only someone is there at that crucial moment, if only someone is listening to the, the deeper current running underneath the story or the threat, many lives could be saved. We've been talking with Susan Stone, producer of Here There Is No Moon. You're listening to ReSound. Can you hear me? Hello? ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program through thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Humanities Council. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.